Hello, and welcome to the Learning Laborers Podcast, where we are passionate about integrating biblical scholarship with ministry. All right, well, welcome listeners to another episode of the Learning Laborers Podcast. We are here, and by we, I mean myself and Denver. What's up? Super excited to introduce you to uh, this episode, a really um, interesting topic, and one that we had a really, really great conversation with Dr. Matthew Halstead. He's the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Eternity Bible College. Uh, He's also the author of Paul and the Meaning of Scripture. It's another book that he's written. But his most recent book is The End of the World as You Know It. Uh, And the subtitle is really important, what the Bible really says about the end times and why it's good news. So we had a great conversation with Matt. Uh, Denver, what can listeners anticipate in this convo? Yeah, it was was a great conversation. I think uh, listeners will really enjoy it, um, whether or not they are super into this topic or not. You know, there's some people out there really into this topic, uh, eschatology and figuring out... um, you know, how's it going to go down, when and where and who. And I think Matthew does a good job of helping give us some some guardrails for those conversations of what can we know and what do we not know about the details. So, um, But, yeah, overall, I think his approach to the topic is a really healthy one in the sense that yeah, um, he recognizes the pastoral concerns that are wrapped up with it um, and obviously the theological uh, and scriptural concerns, um, and and even we talk some about the cultural um, aspects of this topic. I mean, there's a it's a it's a multifaceted book and a multifaceted conversation that I think people will really enjoy. Yeah, and um, Matt really leans into the biblical study side of of this and saying, yeah. okay, you have all these kind of topics about the end times, these hot topics about the mark of the beast, the antichrist, the rapture. Um, What is the end times? Has it already started? Are we in it? Are we not? And he just says, okay, let's go to scripture and let's look at these things um, and really scrutinize. And I think his book does a fantastic job of just laying that stuff out. Um, And we get at that in the conversation. I think that's really the kernel that kind of is all the way through it is, which is have the humility to hold our assumptions open and then go to the text willing to to change as as the text requires, right? Yeah, and I think that humility is so key. I think both for the book and for the conversation, that's one of the things that impressed me the most was just Matthew's posture and attitude towards yeah. the topic and even towards people who would disagree with him on the topic. Um that even though he does spend time in the book and in the conversation critiquing what might be generally called like a dispensational perspective on eschatology, he does it with a very um, charitable attitude. Yeah. Uh, with gentleness, kindness, humility, not claiming to have the last word on the last things, <laughs> yeah. um, but just wants to have an honest conversation about what the text says. So yeah. it's really good. Yeah, and I think there's even some practical stuff for, for ministry laborers just that gets carried throughout with that tone of, you know, say if you have people in your congregation that 
hold to certain views of the end times. That would be more pre-mill dispensational or rapture theology or a literalistic speculative approach to revelation. Um, I think what Matthew does is he gives you a lane, not only in content, but also in demeanor and attitude as to how to come yeah. um, to those topics. Cause that, that's something that, you know, um, I've still am trying to learn in, in ministry, especially when you're in kind of the lanes of scholarship. Um, some things just take a while for the scholarship to work its way into the church. Right. And this is one of those things like critiquing kind of dispensational pre-mill rapture theology is something that um, has not been settled in scholarship because nothing's ever settled in scholarship, but it's been highly critiqued and kind of scrutinized in scholarship and in the academy um, almost to the point where this is, this has been kind of, not abandoned, but settled to a certain extent in the 90s. Like Daniel Hummel talks about this in his book, um, that this is something that the academy has really kind of left behind, <laughs> rapture theology yeah. and all of this stuff. But it's yeah. still made its way into the, the consciousness, or it's still prevalent in the consciousness of the church. And so many of our churchgoers and congregants and parishioners and people we're ministering to in an evangelical context still hold to these things and have these assumptions. And so how we bring about, you know, corrective ideas or um, a scriptural approach that maybe challenges those things is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you enjoy this episode and uh, the show in the show notes, there should be links to books we talk about in the episode episode, as well as um, Matthew's own book, of course, which we encourage everyone to buy and read. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the episode. All right, listeners, well, I am super excited to introduce Dr. Matthew Halstead to uh, the Learning Laborers podcast, and we're about to discuss some fun topics based on a book that he just released called The End of the World As You Know It, and it deals with all things end times. Maybe not all things, but a good number of things having to do with end times. So, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a, pr- it's a real privilege to get to chat with you guys. Yeah, for us too. Appreciate you coming on. Well, let's start with this. Let's, let's just describe your journey of writing about this topic. Was this something you were interested in for a long time or something that maybe prompted you to write this book? Why, why write this book and why now? And that's such a good question. And I probably need to reflect on it more. But um, I think, yeah, I mean, there's like, you know, just like everybody. You know, I grew up in evangelical contexts. Um I, I think that's a fair assumption. I mean, we, you know, I had different influences as a as a kid, but I would say broadly speaking, evangelical. And I, you know, I remember being very interested in this topic, you know, as as a as a young kid cutting his theological teeth, and um, I I remember you know hearing about the rapture, certainly about the Antichrist. Um, the mark of the beast, one world government, all of all of these sorts of things. I mean, that was, I think it's fair to say that, that those things were the focus of all of the eschatological discussions. And, and I remember, you know, being scared by, you know, some of these conversations, 
some of them were just exciting, you know, I mean, yeah. almost entertaining. And, you know, and as it turns out, I mean, a lot of entertainment did come out of this, you know. Um, and I, I'm actually reminded of a book. Uh, it's called Revelation, a Biography, written by Timothy Beale. And it was one I, I read <clears throat> the past couple of years or so. And, and I cite this in my book. But um, Beale in his, in his little, it's a short little book. It's, it's a fascinating read. But he talks about how there was so much eschatological fervor, you know, back in 70s, 80s, 90s, or whatever time period, that it sort of became its own genre of literature. You know, in, I think he calls it evangelical horror. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's fitting, yeah. And yeah, it was actually really, really good. Um, and so you have A Thief in the Night, which I actually, as far as I remember, I never watched that as a kid. That was before my time. But but we did have like the Left Behind series, right? Right, right. And the movies, I remember the Kirk Cameron movie. And um, of course the books, I didn't read all the books, but I read, you know, I forget how many, just a few of them, I guess. But um but they were very entertaining and and very alarming. So I think all of that became seed, as it were, for this project. But um, <clears throat> what you know, what really got this specific book going was, um, uh, I guess, 2020. You know, the COVID year, and we had been seeing my wife and I we had been seeing a lot of things on social media about. Uh, COVID with respect to eschatology. So for example, Mark of the Beast was a big thing that was floating around that somehow the vaccine had something to do with the Mark of the Beast. Um, right. There were other things going on around, you know, this, I can't remember everything, but just different eschatological speculation. And specifically, there were lots of Bible verses being tied to these cultural events that were happening and political right. events even, right? And really that's nothing new. We had, we've seen this for decades um, in, in, you know, in, in America, at least. Um, and, um, and so there was nothing new, but it was a, it was a fresh, um, iteration of, you know, eschatological fervor is, you know, and so my wife, she was like, Hey, you should really like, you should respond to some of these things you're seeing on social media. And I really didn't want to, um, I don't know. I just, for whatever reason, didn't want to. And, um, Finally, I, I she convinced me. <laughs> so I so I so I, I I pulled out my iPhone, um, and on the Notes app, just kind of scribbled up some thoughts, just very random thoughts. And this is kind of how I write anyway. Like I was telling somebody the other day, or a few weeks ago, that you know I try to ha- I, I in theory try to have times where I sit down and write, you know, disciplined times, right? But um, but there are I I feel like I do the the best writing I don't know best of for me at least not great writing perhaps but but I I, I get these weird kind of feelings that, oh I've got to stop everything I'm doing go right like right now you know? <laughs> and so I did that I pulled out my iPhone app and just wrote something up pretty quickly as I recall posted it to uh, social media and it had to do I was talking about the mark of the beast and why it has nothing to do with the vaccine and blah 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 and um <laughs> It, so I posted it and then like everybody, it just kind of went like wildfire, you know? I mean, for me, I mean, it was probably the most shared thing I'd ever shared before. And I was like, oh, this really hit a nerve, you know, or, or right. it helped people because people were sharing it out of, um, saying it helped them. And so a buddy of mine, I had, um, I had, I, I knew, uh, was an editor for, uh, an online 
uh, like pastors and scholars uh, website for their blog. And he's like, hey, can I post that on the blog? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let me make some tweaks to it because this is for like a general audience. But, you know, the, your blog is more for like pastors and uh, church leaders and things like that. And so I tweaked it a little bit, posted it. And that went like wildfire, like at, at the, I don't know, maybe still today, it was the most read article they've ever had on there. And it was even linked in a Yahoo News article, you know, they, a million links in there, one of those links went back to that article. So it was kind of, people were, you know, reading it. And so that led to another article that I wrote as a follow-up. And then he, my editor friend said, hey, something about writing a book, can we squeeze out a book out of this because I think this is really helping people or whatever. And so that, that started the book. And then a couple of years later, uh, here we are. So great. That was probably more than you, you asked for, but that's, um, that, that's sort of the genesis of how these things happened. Well, these things touch a nerve. I think that's what you're, yeah, obviously people are super interested in it. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you, uh, and you opened the book in the introduction talking a, a lot about, and you've already hinted at this uh, in this conversation some, but the kinds of like feelings and attitudes that end times passages or, or end times ideas eschatology in general produces in Christians and that a lot of people, they think about or hear these passages and it produces fear or angst, anxiety in them. And, you know, you make you make the 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 claim that that's probably not actually the <laughs> the the best posture the best attitude with which we come to these texts that they're actually designed to to uh, affect us in different ways so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that why why do you think people um, experience fear when it comes to these texts and and what are the feelings or the attitudes that we're supposed to be feeling when we read a book like Revelation or uh, any other end times passages yeah that's that's such a great question I. I think um, th- th- this was part of my motive too, is because I want I wanted to instill hope in people, right? I wanted to yeah. help people stay encouraged. You know, when I see sincere Christians who love Jesus, following Jesus every day of their life, and they're afraid of eschatology, there's something not right about that. Like they've been taught right. something wrong. They've been something's not correct there, and uh, and 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 not. I, I don't blame them by no means. I mean, I blame. Uh, evangelical culture, I maybe, and I pick on evangelicals not because I don't know. I just that's sort of what I was in, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm not it's sort of the tribe that I was in. So um, I'm not trying to be unfair in other way, in, in other right. words. But what I'm what I'm saying is that, like there's just a lot of bad teaching out there. I don't know how else to put it, and it's created a lot of fear in people. And so what I say in the book is, hey, eschatology, you know, for Christians, this is a beautiful thing. This is a great thing. And that's why the title of the book yeah. is what the Bible really says about the end times and why it's good news. Yeah. And I think that needs to resonate more with us. I mean, I still, I still need to let it resonate with me because I can, I look at the world today and I'm like, man, this is like a terrible place, but I need to remember No, no, no. There's good news, right. That we need to focus on. And and so to, to answer your question directly is like, what is it about eschatology that drives the fear? Um, I think there are probably a number of things here is one, we don't know, and, and perhaps this is controversial, um, but I think when it comes to biblical eschatology, you know, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we can't know. And so right. there's, and I, this is something I argue in my book, you know, when I say talk about the Antichrist, for example. I believe there will be a future Antichrist that's just 
the reading I get from scripture, but there's honestly a lot we don't know about him. And, and so there's also a lot we don't know about the context in which the Antichrist will rise, you know, and whatever. And, and because of that, that sort of gap of knowledge there, it's very easily to fill it in with speculation, right? And, um, and so unless, it, you know, that's just why as Christians, we need to be very disciplined to say, okay, let's, let's speculate responsibly. Let's just say it could be, it might be, it's possible that, you know, use those sorts right. of language, uh, that sort of language. And, um, but it's, it's really, you know, anytime you stare into a, a black void, you just, you know, you're, you're just left to, you know, insert anything there. And so, and I think, so I think maybe we just have a lack of discipline, you know, or whatever. And it's okay, I think, to speculate, you know, sometimes we have to do that. Um, but, but we just need to do it responsibly. And if we can't do that, then just don't speculate at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just something I would say simply, but the other thing too, is I think there's just legitimate confusion about the concept of divine judgment. And the more I've thought about this, the more I'm convinced that's the case. I don't think, I don't think Christians, I don't think non-Christians understand the Christian idea of judgment. Um, perhaps it's been taught wrong. Perhaps we've just emphasized the wrong aspects of it. But here's what I mean. When we think of divine judgment, obviously we associate that with the end times or the final events, you know, the last things. And that's correct. We should do that. But but judgment is always, it seems, associated with neg- something negative. Right. Like, you know, you know, punishment of sin, say, or hell or things like that. Now, I believe sin will be punished. You know, I think I, I think that happens. There are negative, what we would might call negative aspects to this concept of judgment. But if we leave it there, then we've, we don't have the biblical concept of judgment um, understood. Uh, we don't understand it. Yeah. And, and here's what I mean. Because there's a positive aspect to judgment too. At the end of the day, judgment is just about, the, about God making the world good again, making it right again. Yeah. And... And, and that's what God's going to do. Like he's, this is how I conceive of judgment. And if I recall, this comes from, these, I think this image comes from St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian church fathers. <clears throat> I, I'm not a patristic scholar, so I reserve the right to maybe mix my <laughs> fathers up a little bit. But, sure. but um, <laughs> I've read a lot of Gregory, but as I get older, my memory fades. And so I don't always remember what I read. But anyway, the, this idea of like standing, you know, that, that God's going to show up and he's just, you know, marvelous light, say, and, and he's just going to shine. That's, that's what happens. He's just going to show up and shine his glorious light. And the response, the effect that that has on people is determined by the constitution of their hearts. If they too are full of light, this is a beautiful event. If they are full of darkness, then the light pierces the darkness and that's going to hurt. But, but the act of judgment itself is just Jesus showing up, showing his marvelous light. But the way that's experienced depends. So for so coming full circle again, you know, and there's a lot of things about judgment that's very, you know, there's a lot of, and the Bible uses a lot of symbolic language and metaphors and things. It's really hard to nail down exactly. Here's how it's going to be and here's what it's going to look like. Sure. Um, but, but, um, but I think that idea from St. Gregory probably helps conceptualize it a little bit. And for me, that really helps with eschatology. Is I just want to tell Christians who are faithful to Jesus, they love Jesus, they serve him every day. 
I want to say, no, this is going to be a beautiful event for you. Like this is, this is God making the world right again. This is going to be union with God. That's good news. Right. Right. So, um, I mean, as I was, as I said before to somebody, now, if you're dancing with the devil, right, if that's your thing, then when Jesus shows up, no, I mean, that's, that's, you're going to experience that negative aspect of judgment, but that's not because God is mean, right? You know, um, yeah. it has nothing, you know, if I have, if I'm in a dark room and I flip on the lights, the light vanquishes the darkness, not because the light is mean, it's just a metaphysical reality. It's just, you know, God, by virtue of who he is as a being, you know, being all love, all good, that's going to hurt something that is committed to that which is evil. Right. Has nothing to do with God being bad. You know, God's not bad at all. He's not mean. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's a great metaphor. I haven't heard that one before. Um, I remember I was teaching through Second Peter recently, and there's that imagery of fire coming in Second Peter 3. And it's, it's all very destructive, it seems like. Uh, things are being burned up, but also the works are being revealed or something's being disclosed. And it's this image of fire has this ability to destroy, but also refine. And I kind of leaned into that metaphor of like God's judgment is coming as a fire, but this fire does both of those things simultaneously. It's very similar to to what you're yeah. saying. I think that's a helpful way to kind of yep. frame frame that judgment for people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that what you just mentioned there really captures it too, is that, you know, if, if you're chaff, you're going to be burned up, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but but if you have you know, the, the goodness of the gospel wedged into your heart Mm. and that's, that's infused into your being. Yeah. And there's things that need to burn up, burn off in our lives, of course, but, um, but we will stand and and that fire actually perfects us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause in that same passage, it says, God does not wish that anyone would perish, right? His character is not to burn and dissolve all of, all of his good creation. He doesn't want it to perish. Yeah. So that's, that's key. No. You're exactly right. 100%. Yeah. God, I don't think we understand. I, I'm just convinced of this uh, and I'm not pointing fingers. Like I don't think I understand actually truly the depth of the love of God. I don't, you know, you know, the, in, in Christian tradition, we have this idea of the beatific vision that we're just going to be gazing into the face of God for eternity. That's how, you know, I'm not, I'm a biblical scholar, not a theologian, so I don't get into some of those things, but like, <laughs> but that's the, that's the idea as far as I understand the beatific vision is just you know, enjoying God's face and forever intellectually, emotionally, it'll consume us. You know, it's a beautiful picture when you think about it, you know. Oh, absolutely. Now, okay, let's kind of keep moving here. Um, These things can all get a little dicey just talking about end times and eschatology. There's a lot of terms that gets thrown out there. Pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill, dispensational, you know, all this stuff. I remember being in seminary kind of just caught up in all of it and I had no idea really where to land. Um, But when we talk about like kind of popular, the popular end times paradigm of the evangelical church, I'm just interested how you would respond to this. Could you summarize it and give it a label like, is there something you could say, this is the evangelical end times paradigm? Um, and if not like a label, at least key components, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'll just kind of preface this, say this is my perspective on what I would call, you know, because I have this kind of knee-jerk reaction against labels anyway. 
<laughs> you know, people, what are you, Matt? Are you all millennial? Are you pre-millennial? I'm like, ah, I don't know if I like boxes, honestly. <laughs> but so, so all to say, I'll just preface this. This is my perspective on what I've experienced. And I, you know, acknowledge I'm just in one corner of the universe. But um, from, yeah, I would say American evangel- conservative evangelicalism has a popular view. And the popular view goes like some something like this, that um, the end times, quote unquote, is that period of time associated with what we might say is the final event or the final events. Okay, so what are the final events? Well, the first of the final events that we haven't gotten to yet is the rapture, right? So the rapture is the idea that Jesus will come uh, to the earth. And by coming to the earth, we don't mean he's like sitting foot on the ground, but he's like in the sky. But it's very secret. It's, it's um, you know, it's not a public sort of thing, in, you know, in that sense. But he secretly raptures, catches up his church into the clouds. And he takes the church off to heaven for... And within the popular view, there's some debate about this, but he'll take them away for seven to 10 years or so, something to that effect. Uh, Seven years is the norm, I think, is what most people think. And while the church is removed from the earth for seven years, um, here on the earth, uh, you have the start of a tribulation or, you know, and there's actually debate among prophecy teachers on this, but how long after the rapture does the tribulation start, right? And you know, they say, yeah, it's probably pretty soon, but not, it doesn't technically start right at the rapture, but some point after the rapture, you have this, a seven ish year tribulation. <clears throat> and, um, and this seven year tribulation, uh, is kicked off in a sense by the rise of who we would call the antichrist. The antichrist rises to power politically. Uh, it seems, um, he establishes some sort of one world government. The first three and a half years of this one world government is relatively peaceful. The last three and a half years of this, uh, of his domination is definitely not peaceful. Like it's a great tribulation, they would say. It's a time of deep, deep trial, persecution, martyrdom. And during this time, by the way, you can become Christians. Um, there's always these opportunities. In fact, in one of the books that I write, I mean, in, in the book I write, uh, wrote, um, I cite a, a, a prophecy teacher who in his book, he he addresses the book to people who um, might be left behind. So his book is actually for those who are left behind, right? Like he's leaving them this message. Here's what you need to do. Like he really takes this seriously. And, and so, you know, people can become Christians during this time and those who do risk their lives, of course, and they could die. Um, and then after seven years, um, Jesus comes back with his church to set up a thousand year reign on the earth. And um, he puts Satan and the Antichrist, you know, tosses the Antichrist to judgment. Satan's bound for a thousand years. Jesus reigns for a thousand years on the earth in the millennial kingdom. After the thousand years, Satan is released from his prison to deceive the nations one last final time. And then you have this great big battle at the end. And then that's where eternity starts when Jesus wins that battle. And he wins it pretty easily, right? So I would say that's a general overview of the popular view. That's the one I grew up hearing the most. Right. You know, if you if you are in a different part of the world, say, um, that this view might be totally foreign. But in American evangelicalism, I, I would say that's the view. That's the view um, most associated, I think, when people think of the end times. That's what they're going to think of. Yeah. 
I think it is interesting, you know, I think it's helpful to to add that um, qualifier of American evangelicalism because it is, that's, in my travels, it really does seem like folks in other parts of the world aren't quite as preoccupied with at least all the the details of of what's to come and that pers- that specific model that you've described doesn't seem to have as much sway and influence in other parts of the nation so mm-hmm. um, before we get into maybe looking at the details of some of that perspective I think one of the general principles you kind of highlighted there was that each generation tends to view their own time as the end time. Um, that in your book, you talk about a, a lot of times um, folks that are, you know, working to quote unquote decode revelation or to, to figure out what's going to happen. It tends to always be soon. It's going to be in their lifetime. You know, it's, it's very, very seldom does someone predict like 300 years from now is, <laughs> is the end time because it yeah. doesn't feel relevant. Um, <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how much, um, yeah. but at the same time, like when John's writing Revelation or Jesus is telling parables, like there is a sense that it is for every generation that like mm-hmm. it means something, it's relevant to to every generation. So do you have any thoughts on how we balance that? The balance, the, mm-hmm. the idea that this is not all about us and, and this particular time. But it is for us in some sense that it's relevant. Yeah. So, it, yeah, in my book, I talk about how I, th- I think I use the phrase we have a me centered approach yeah. to readings, say Revelation. And I push back against that. I'm like, well, it shouldn't be all about us. Like, you know, and um, and I think, you know, in, in, in terms of your question about how do we balance this out? I think that's a that's a really good question. I, I hope we all just really think deeply about the answer here is. Um, and the question itself, but, um, I think I, you know, the more I think about that question, the more I want to legitimate the motives behind those who have a me centered approach to revelation. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I think people like, okay. So you could say that everybody has a me centered approach to scripture because the Maybe there's narcissism rampant in the hum- in human DNA or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Sure. It's true. I mean, in many respects, I think that's a, that's a something we need to assess. Um, there could also be a legitimate, valid motive for this, and and I, I would say that that might be, we just want a relationship with God. We want God's word mm. to speak to us. We yeah. we need that, right? Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, and I think that's an important aspect that we should validate and legitimate because, you know, not, you know, when people read Revelation or eschatological passages in general, and they find their, they, they want to find a way for that to speak to them. Sure. And, and the first thing is to do to pick, is pick up the newspaper, right? It's a, what, what Craig Keener would call newspaper hermeneutics. Um, and, and they would pick up the newspaper and they say, oh, this has happened in the Middle East. My goodness, I've kind of read, there's kind of a story about that in the New Testament or in the Old Testament or whatever. And they pair the two together without maybe much critical reflection. But the motive there is just to say, God sees our predicament today. God sees what's happening and God's going to work this out, you know? And so um, now some people would see that and just be afraid. And I, I definitely think there's a lot of people out there like that. But I just want to validate that it's just a lot of it probably has to do with people just want the word of God to speak to them. Now, what I would say to those people is absolutely like I'm a, I'm 
Like I'm a biblical scholar, but I'm a confessional biblical scholar, meaning I don't just um I don't just write about the Bible like to write about the Bible from like a a, a supposed objective, you know, disin, disinterested perspective. No, I mean I I actually believe this stuff. Like I actually believe Jesus is the Lord, right? And he's going to come again. I believe all this stuff. Um and uh so so in in light of that, I, I think we should, I encourage people to read the Bible in such a way that it speaks to them. I think we should read it with eyes of faith. I mean, I'm totally for that approach. Yeah. Um, not, and I, by the way, I, I should preface it. I'm not suggesting that if you're a non-confessional scholar that you don't produce good work. Like I learn a lot from non-confessional scholars. Sure. Um, so I'm not saying that uh, at all. But okay, so anyway, coming back to this, I would say we just need to be really careful because... Um, you know, in our in our endeavor to hear God speak to our times, we don't need to just rush to imposing our assumptions upon the text. Because what might end up happening is that we misconstrue the Word of God, and then we get we get we set ourselves up for failure. Because you know, a lot of these prophecy teachers, for example, do that sort of thing, and then their prophecies never pan out. But where does that leave their followers? Well. Yeah. A careful a, a follower who actually pays very close attention to these sorts of things will 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 need to say, well, I guess that person was wrong, and well, is the Bible wrong? You know, it causes all these sorts of questions. So, right, um, we need to take a step back and say, if we want the Bible to speak to us today, okay, if we really want that, and I'm assuming that this is what drives most of these modern specula- speculations. If we really want the Bible to speak to us today, then we have to let it speak. And here's what I mean by that. I think hermeneutics, interpretive theory, is like a dialogue where, yes, I bring my assumptions to the text, but the text has its own assumptions that it's going to bring to me. And if I try to drown the textual assumptions, the the context of the Bible, historical context, religious, all that, if I drown those that context with Matt Halstead's assumptions, then the only thing I read out of the Bible will be what I've read into it, right? And it's it's it just becomes Matt's voice yeah. through the Bible, right? And, okay. Now, what I need to do though is just I need you know I can never and this this kind of, this comes from my first book um, because when I talk about hermeneutic theory, um, the Paul book. Anyway. Um, so, so like, I don't think that we'll ever be able to read the Bible, quote unquote, objectively. Yeah. You're always going to bring assumptions to the text, okay? And those assumptions are bequeathed to you from your heritage, your tradition, whatever. Right. Family, whatever. And so, so we'll never be able to erase those. But what we, what we can do is just acknowledge them and bring them to the surface and and that and, and and the way we do that, so sometimes you you don't even know you have certain assumptions. Like you, you're it's like water to a fish. Like you just you're just living in them. Um, so what you need to do is to get let the Bible speak. That's what I meant earlier. You have to let the Bible truly speak to you. And the way you do that is to get so immersed in the Bible's world and the Bible's horizon of understanding, context, language, religious culture, all that. And then you begin to notice by doing some of that historical research, say the the Greco-Roman world, you begin to notice, oh, this is why 
Paul or John says the things they say or say the things they say. Um, and what that ends up doing is kind of making the Bible and the text of the Bible strange again. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Because we can be so familiar with the Bible that we never ever think to, I mean, we, we just miss so much. Familiarity sometimes breeds um, and fosters um, just uncritical reflection. I think an example of this is like, take John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Um, you know, that, that word so, for God so loved the world. I, you know, I never ever, until I like went to seminary and learned Greek and stuff, I never knew, I never thought to even ask the question, what does that word mean? Like, so. God so loved the world. Like, does that mean he intensely, for God intensely loved the world that he, you know. Well, in Greek, it's not that. That's not it at all. It's for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only. Now, that's a pretty intense sort of love, of course, that that you still get that. But, but until you make that passage strange again, you don't really, you don't really see the nuance there. You know of that. So, yeah. but to make the that passage strange, you got to learn. You might want to learn Greek, right? And and that's just an example of how diving into the passage's context, its grammar, say, can really change a few things um, and help you understand. So, I think I think when it this is such a long answer to your question, but but I think like that's um, great. When you come to the Bible, you really have to let it speak, and because as I said. Um, interpretation as a dialogue with scripture i really believe that you bring your questions to the text and the text is an answer book it, it it brings answers to your questions but it works the other way around too the text will bring you questions mm-hmm. and it, it will want an answer back right and so i think that uh you uh, you can't let you can't and i say this a lot like you can't mute the biblical text let it speak to you yeah, let it truly speak to you. Um, bring your assumptions. Your assumptions are so important. I can't emphasize enough. The, the 21st century political context so important. Um, I'm not suggesting it's not, but but it will never we'll never see how the Bible can speak to our context if we don't let it have a life within its own context first. Right? Does that make sense? Or at the same time, there is a mystery to interpretation. It's circular. They call it the hermeneutical circle, where you know you don't understand the whole sentence until you understand the word in the sentence, but you don't understand the word until you understand the whole context yes. of the sentence. The same thing goes for biblical texts. Like, you know, there's this mysterious cycle between your your assumptions that you bring and the way the text speaks to speaks back to you with its assumptions. It's a and we don't have to get into all the theory. But um but all to say, um, even though there you know, your assumptions play a role in the text, the text must be able to speak at the same time. Otherwise you're smothering it and you're not letting you're not doing interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry if that went a little too long, but but, but that's just some people ask, "Hey, what's what, what are your thoughts on this?" And I should probably like, "Do you want a short answer or do you want <laughs> you know, maybe a longer?" No, one? <laughs> that's really helpful because I think it shows how this topic especially kind of serves as a a test case that exposes some of yeah. those ex- yeah. assumptions and, you know, the, it this touches on our hermeneutic, um it touches on pastoral concerns like you were talking about. Um, it's just it touches on so many things and it's it's a really helpful way to approach it but I know that Taylor wants to make sure we have time to um, <laughs> dive into the concept of the rapture and your thoughts on that so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass it over to him and let him 
ask questions to his heart's content. Right, right, right. <laughs> I just want to comment on that bit from from you, Matt. I think that's, you know, for readers looking why this why to read this book. I think your book is really a and um, what you just described, um, saying let's really look at what the Bible says. Let's have the yeah. humility to open Scripture to bring our assumptions and to scrutinize. And I think you do that super well. And you're constantly pulling people to read the Bible closely in context. Uh, about all these different issues ranging from, you know, the mark of the beast, the antichrist. But one of those um, is the rapture. And I think, again, you are extremely helpful, I think, on all these issues. You're clear, you're methodical, exegetically sound. Um, You're interacting with opposing views, summarizing, you know, opposing views. So it's just a really helpful breakdown. So I'd encourage people to to, um, take a read, really. but rather than just cover everything that you go over, I'd like to zero in on the rapture. And I do have some personal interest in this because a few months ago I wrote this blog, um, why the rapture needs to be left behind. And, you know, I thought that was pretty good, yeah. right? Yeah, that's um, great. So but it was my most read blog of the year, which isn't saying anything. Maybe that's like 10 people as opposed to five, but it was also my most controversial. And I realized very quickly, people are very tight gripped about this. Like nah. this is almost a litmus test for something. And I don't know what that something yeah. is, but it is, it is just yeah. this really um, cherished view. And I'm sure you're coming across this quite often, even in your story about the blog that you wrote. Um, do you have any theories as to why that is? What is so near and dear about this rapture theology? Yeah, that's such a, man, that's such a great question. Um, let, let's just, let's just kind of be honest about this is like, um, we all have our precious doctrines, right? <laughs> like, um, we all are very, there's maybe one or two things that we're super passionate about, like, you know, whatever that one, those one or two things are. Right. And so I think it's not, I, I think it's just part of human nature to be passionate about those one or two things. Right. It's like, it's like being, you know, your favorite sports team. Like, you know, you're just, you're just a huge fan of that team. Right. Well, we, we do that with doctrines too, and we're just huge fans of that. And so because of this, um, and, and by the way, I think that's that not to play social psychologist with psychologists here, but like, um, I think it's because we long for identity uh, as people. And so latching onto a doctrine, latching onto a person and, you know, whatever it brings comfort to us and gives us some sort of shape and identity until, until we can find someone else, we do that. Again, I'm not, I'm not making value judgment here. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's a thing. And so I think with rapture theology, much of the same thing's going on. So I'm not, I don't want to look on people and say, man, you're just so weird. You know? <laughs> right. Because the truth is, I think we all do this. We all latch onto our favorite thing. It's just who we are as people, right? Now, the, yeah. but, but if I could, so I want to be charitable in, in this respect too, you know, um, if I could critique, though, this just the content of rapture and the conversation. So there's two things. Here. The conversation around rapture theology is pretty interesting. Um, and the content of rapture theology is very interesting, too. So let me let me kind of parse these two things. out. Yeah. In my book, I, I actually cite a. Um, uh, a well-known uh, prophecy teacher. And um, if I if I can't remember the exact words, but it. I think he says something like, 
in one of his books. He says, um, the very thing, the, the very fact that we have people questioning whether there's a rapture or not is proof that we, you know, are living in trying times or troubling yeah. times. Like he, he is, yeah. you remember that part? I yeah, do yeah, remember he, that, yeah. Yeah, he associates denial of rapture theology or questioning rapture theology with, um, you know, the 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 de- degradation of the world, right? Now, let me let me let's just stop for a moment here and just let's just think about this. Like, if I'm a parishioner in in this church, or if I'm a follower of his writings or whatever, and I read that, I have zero motivation ever to question rapture theology because the it's been framed, the conversation has been framed in such a way that. It, it, to question rapture theology is to make myself part of the group pushing against God. You know the, I'm, I, you know, and so it shuts down. The, the, and I'm not saying, by no means, am I saying that this person, this author, intended to do this. I, I think this person just is very sincere and loves their their doctrine very much. And you know, but but they do need to see if I could be so bold to critique it. I, they do need to see that how they've shut down the conversation and they've. They've muted the voice of other people because in order to even raise a voice in this on this subject is to align yourself with the nefarious works of the devil, right? <laughs> um, and so so I think that's part of the conversation rapture theology and some eschatological things is that we are taught never to ask questions because of the way conversations are framed at this point. Right. You know, and I actually I do talk about this in the book where I say, you know, it just from my own personal journey is like, I never thought to ask questions. I never, you know, I never really thought to until something clicked. I'm like, well, where is that in the Bible? Like, where does it say that in the Bible? And, you know, you know, and so, and, and so I just encourage people always ask the questions. Like we should never shy away from the questions. And I even invite readers to ask questions of my book. Like I don't own eschatology. I don't have the final word on eschatology. I'm getting something, you know, if you take all Matt's eschatology views, I mean, there's something that I'm not right on, you know, and I have areas to grow in. So I, I welcome questions myself. And and so I think that's the spirit that we need to have in these conversations to be respectful enough to ask the questions and, and, and have other people to ask questions. So anyway. Well, yeah, I think, you know, just to reiterate, there's a quote in your book that stood out to me um, that you say the belief in the in the rapture is so enmeshed into the DNA of some Christian traditions that the question itself might even appear heretical. And I was like, yeah, that resonated. That to even raise the prospect of this isn't true or not in the Bible um, mm-hmm. was just so out of bounds. So to even kind of start posing this question, you have to recognize that some people are having that posture, that disposition. I think that's critical. Um, but if you can get them to the point of saying, okay, well, let's open the Bible together. You know, yeah, let's talk a little bit about where where do people go in Scripture to see this and um, talk about the content of it a little bit that way. Maybe some of the key passages, if we could. Yeah, for sure. Let, let me just follow up with what, what we just talked about, the, the conversation of, of rapture theology. Is um, One thing I would just remind people and help, maybe we all need this, we all need this reminder is, don't confuse your interpretation of scripture with scripture, right? And I think that's part of what fuels this whole debate is to question rapture theology, you know, makes you a heretic or it, <laughs> or it, at best, it makes you someone who doubts the word of God or something like that. Like I've heard that a lot too. Mm-hmm. 
that if you don't have a literal view of, or whatever they call literal of these sorts of things, then then you don't believe the Bible. No, no, no. I would just respond like, no, no, no. I just don't believe your interpretation of the Bible. Right. right. Yeah. And, um, and so I think it's important there. And by the way, we only make that mistake. We only confuse our interpretation with the Bible when we don't acknowledge the assumptions we're bringing to the Bible, right? When we don't even, when we think that there's such a thing as a pure reading of scripture, right? Yeah. Um, now, let me just say, I'm not suggesting, I am in no way suggesting that any reading of scripture goes or every reading of scripture is valid or any, inter- you know, what, no, I'm not saying that. I, I, I think there are boundaries of interpretation. There are right and wrong interpretations of scripture. Right. And in, in, in the first book I wrote on hermeneutics, that I, I go into that a little bit, like, you know, just following how Paul reads scripture. But anyway, um, so I just wanted to say that I think that's part of the problem is we confuse our interpretation yeah. of scripture with scripture. Now, to answer your question, like some of the, the passages that people go to, um, what I did in my book is I was, I followed along, you know, some well-known prophecy teacher, you know, authors and stuff. And I just, I wanted to, you know, I didn't have time to address everything, but I wanted to pick like a few, a handful of passages that they thought were really good passages to support um, the rapture idea. And, and I, I think it's Tim LaHaye he, in his one of his books. He has a whole slew of passages that he believes supports rapture theology. And I didn't deal with all of them. I just didn't have the space for that. But I, I picked some of the three of the most important ones that he felt were important. So I, I wanted to be respectful to say, you know, not, you know, I'm not, I want to build a straw man, you know, like sure. I, want, yeah. I wanted them to pick the passages that we dealt with. So um, one of the passages, and I think this is probably the most important passage for rapture theology is first Thessalonians four verses 13 through 18. Yeah. Um, and so, so Paul in that passage, he talks about that when the Lord comes, when Jesus returns, um, he, uh, we will go out to meet him in the air and we will so be with him forever. Um, and, and so that's taken to be a rapture idea that you're caught up with him in the air, you know, and, and then he takes you off to heaven. That's the way it goes. What I, what I argue in my book though, is, is I say, okay, well, let's, let's take a few steps back here. Mm-hmm. You know, our interpretive model is to, you know, get into the world of scripture. In other words, I, before I can understand what this might mean, I, I need to really dive into the the original context a little bit more. Okay, so the first thing I know about this text is that it was written in the first century. It was written to a church in Thessalonica, and Paul wrote it. Okay, so so I begin to, um, I, I have that as my base. Now, the next thing is I begin to maybe do some research on some key terms that Paul will use in that context. And there are a couple of key terms that he uses. The first of which is when he talks about the coming of Jesus. Okay. So the word for the coming or the, the arrival, the coming of Jesus is parsia. And in this idea, parsia means like the presencing of Jesus. You could translate it as the presencing, the showing up. Okay. Um, and so that's a, that's a loaded, very loaded term, a very important term in the New Testament. Um, and, uh, and then you have this idea of meeting the Lord, this concept of going to meet him. Okay. And, and as it turns out, you know, these concepts of Jesus showing up and going out to meet him were concepts that actually the Thessalonians would have understood being 
in a, in a Greco-Roman world. So, for example, when you do a little digging, um, you find out that there was a common practice in the ancient world for dignitaries, kings, emperors, whatever, to go visit cities across the empire, right? So if Caesar showed up or if Caesar sent an ambassador or whatever. Um, now, we have to understand that like, this is a completely different world than the 21st century. In, in America, for example, you know, the president will get on Air Force One, fly into the city, like from the air, like drop down from the air, right? He doesn't like take <laughs> the interstates. From the air, lands at a local Air Force base, and then he's limoed out. And he's, already, he's in the city already, right? And, and traffic stops for him, you know, and he goes to wherever he's going. Um, and um, in the ancient world, it was slightly different, right? Where you didn't drop in from the air from an airplane. Like, you were on horseback or, you know, I don't, you know, whatever, coming in. And, and, and people in a city could see you or they would hear that you were on the way because you might be 50 miles out, right? And that gives you time to prepare, right? And so what would happen if you knew that a dignitary, a ruler was coming to your city, it was customary, indeed expected, for citizens of the city to, um, to prepare for the arrival, the presencing of the dignitary. And they did that by going out to meet the dignitary and, uh, and then parade him or her back to the city. Um, it's like a parade, right? We kind of see this with presidential visits too. You might see, or the, the queen of England or the king now, uh, you know, when he goes and visits places, people are lining the streets, you know, they're parading him in. And so that's what would happen in the ancient world. But the idea there is not that you go out to meet him and to go away somewhere. The idea was to go out and meet him and then escort him back to his right, to, to his, to his um, city. And it was to show that, hey, we recognize that you own this joint, that this is your place and we welcome you here, right? So when you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, why should we interpret that any differently? That's how they would have understood those key terms because they were political terms in a sense, right? Now, you could say that, no, 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 we still go out and we meet him and he takes us away. And I just want to point out, that's an assumption. Yeah. That you're adding that to the text. Okay, maybe you're right to add it to a text, to, to, to the text. But just acknowledge that that's not there. In the now, they could say, well, it says that we'll always, we'll go out to meet him in the air. We'll meet him there, and then we'll always be with the Lord. But it doesn't say where. So we kind of have this choice, right? Now, it doesn't, it, to be honest, it doesn't say, okay, and then we'll escort him back to the, to the earth. It doesn't say those things. So either way, you have an assumption. So the big question we have to ask, though, which assumption has the most legitimacy behind it? How would the first century Christians have expected that whole event to occur? Well, it's not about them expecting it. It's about them having experienced it already because they've experienced these sorts of dignitary arrivals. The best assumption is that they were thinking that, yes, Jesus would show back up. They would meet him in the air and escort him back to the, back to the earth, which he, um, which he owns. And they celebrate that, parade him back. It's a public event. Anything less than that is assumption. So um, it's unwarranted assumption, I should say. Sure. Um, so that's the best reading that I think we have. We have historical data to back all that up. Um, you know, um, and so I think I think that's the fairest reading that I could give it. 
Yeah, we even have, you know, some biblical um, example with Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Like the crowd goes out to meet Jesus outside of the city and escort him in, right? I mean, that would be kind of one example you could use. Yeah, I like that example because like it, 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 you're, you're bringing public attention to the king, right? And I think that's a beautiful example, him coming into his home where he rightly belongs, right? And and I think on a that's a microcosm of the the way the 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 end times will, will work, right? Or the final events, I should say, is that we escort the king back home, and he will take up his throne, and he will make all things right, and we get to participate in that. Yeah, it's a beautiful scene, really, when you think about it. And and by the way, by the way, let me say this: this is really cool news. It's it's a it's a joyful parade, like it's like kids you know i have young kids and every year in our town we have uh, a festival and a parade my kids love that thing because they i mean it's just <laughs> a fun thing and i remember loving parades and i think yeah. this the, the the joy it's contagious too because you have a lot of people and you have candy thrown everywhere and i think like i think this idea of joyfully bringing in the king i, I think i think we need to recapture this idea of the eschaton where at that point, whenever that point happens, we can legitimately look at the world and say, man, it's going to get better starting today. Like yeah. the world is being remade. Now, the cool thing is with eschatology, there's an already but not yet aspect here. So yeah, that hasn't happened yet. But what has happened is that through the lives of millions of people, Jesus has already come into our hearts, we might say metaphorically, right? But really, it's more than metaphor. There's a genuine union that's already happened in the lives of believers where the Spirit indwells us such that we can be called temples of God or the temple of God. Yeah. Um, and Jesus, moreover, the Messiah has already arrived. He has already started the process of resurrection 2,000 years ago. And he now today has a people, a resurrected people, who are bringing the life of heaven into a corrupt world. And that is beautiful news. And we're asking people, hey, get on board with this thing. Yeah. Get on board with the new creation. Um, you can start today. In fact, you know, today is the day of salvation, and um, but you can start today, and then as you do, you're anticipating the future. So, and I talk about this in the book with that. If you're in Christ, you're already participating in the eschaton right now. Yeah, and 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 I encourage people like N.T. Wright has written a lot of good things on everything I've just mentioned, and I draw a lot from him. It's been a he's he's really helped me to recapture the joy of the eschaton. I think yeah in this mm. respect. So anyway, yeah, his work surprised by hope is is really helpful. Yeah, that, that influenced me a lot when I was thinking through these issues as yeah. well. Oh, it's yeah, the, his his stuff on this is really helpful for sure. Yeah, and I think what's cool about that that way you've encouraged us to to rethink the passage is that it turns it from being a moment of like escape to a moment of triumph and and victory and joy. It's not a, hey, get us out of here, but it's a welcome, welcome home, welcome to where you're supposed to be. That's that's beautiful. Absolutely. You know, I, I've, <clears throat> I was, I'm writing an article now um, on um, the Lord's Prayer. And um, which I talk about how, you know, this idea of, you know, God, it, it's sort of, well, let me just back up and just say, here's the thing. If you pray the Lord's Prayer, and we should all pray this like regularly, um, you will have infused in your soul, deep into your bones, the idea that you are not intended to leave the earth to go to heaven. 
but that God's plan for the cosmos is to actually bring heaven to earth. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, the Lord's prayer is an eschatological prayer in that sense. You know, it's not escapism, it's infusion. It's the infusion of the life of the spirit into a corrupt world and making it new again. But that's, that's what the gospel I think is all about. Right. Uh, Amen. Yeah. It's such a, it's such an important thing, you know, as to, yes, we want to have this end times theology correct so that we can read our Bibles well. But also there's so many practical implications for how we live our life, how we follow Jesus, um, that I would love to tease out more with you. There's a great quote, uh, Barbara Rossing wrote a book called The Rapture Exposed. And she talks about how the rapture really messes with our evangelistic witness and our spiritual life. She has this quote that says, in place of healing, the rapture proclaims escape. In place of Jesus's blessings of peacemakers, the rapture voyeuristically glorifies violence and war. In the place of Revelation's vision of the Lamb's vulnerable self-giving love, the rapture celebrates the lion-like wrath of the Lamb. It's, it's pretty heavy, but what she's saying is we have to be careful how we frame up the end because it will shape how we view Jesus and how we therefore live like Jesus today. So, you know, that's some of the pushback I've gotten when, you know, talking about the rapture, the end times, and, you know, why does this matter? Why upset people's, you know, dispositions and mess with decades of their understanding of the Bible, Taylor? Like, why do this? Um, and I think that's part of the the thing is, I think this really matters for how we live our lives. How would you answer that question or add to that? Yeah, and, and I, you know, I've had people, um, I'm thinking one uh, specific moment where somebody was saying, well, you know, none of this really matters. You know, it's, you know, and, and I would say... It depends what you mean, right? No, I mean, I, I think I have dear brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in the rapture, right? Like uh, dear, sincere <laughs> followers of Jesus who will read my book and say, yeah, I believe pretty much everything opposite Matt says, you know, and I, you know, I rejo- <laughs> I'll, I'll take the Eucharist with them. You know, it's not going to affect my relationship with them at all. So in that sense, it doesn't matter, right? And I, I want to acknowledge that, right? On the other side of the coin, and I can't emphasize this enough, though, is that it really does. Not not for Christian unity, but for um, but for Christian witness, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think, and those two do go together in many respects, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to things like rapture theology, I just think it's important that that we, for any anything that we believe or whatever, that we, we stop and we, we know why we believe what we believe. I know that's very cliche, but we should know the answer to the, that question. You know, because yeah. here's the thing. Um, rapture theology is very, very popular. And the watching world watches that and sees all that. And, and you know, you want to be able to give a reason for why you think rapture theology is legitimate. Well, okay. So if that's the case then we need to make sure our reasons for believing in rapture are like rock solid, right? Historically rock solid, theological, all that sort of, sort of thing. I just happen to think that it's, it's not. And, and so, um, and really what I invite people to do is just to, you know, write a rebuttal, like show me where I'm wrong. And then, you know, I'm, I'm after the truth, you know, so if I'm wrong, then I want the truth, you know, I don't want, I don't need anything else. 
And so, so it helps with our Christian witness. I think that's why it matters. I want to make sure that we give a reasoned defense for the hope that lies within us and, yeah. and that sort of thing. The other thing I would say when it just comes to eschatology in general is it actually affects people in society in more ways than we ever probably can imagine. Let me give an example of this. Like people vote based on their eschatology. Mm. Think of that, that people vote based on it. But moreover, it's not just voting. Okay. We're not talking like voting for city council or, you know, we're talking about voting for people who have access to red buttons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we, we, we base our sometimes our voting on certain eschatological views. We say, because based on our view, I want you to be the person who has access to the red button, who can wage wars in the Middle East or wherever, you wherever you need to, right? Um, but, but I think my point is, is that that people do this like people make life big decisions based on their eschatological views Uh, michael gorman in his book reading revelation responsibly actually talks about this too there's a little section there where he talks about how um i can't remember the exact quote but he he touches on that, that that point and i think okay if that's the case if there's if there are huge ramifications politically societally like culturally that exists downstream of our eschatology, which I think that's clear. I think it does. Then we should make sure what we're saying about eschatology is rock solid. I mean, think of, just think of the ramifications. Like if you believe certain things about the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you're bringing that to bear. Like that has consequences, right? I mean. You know, if your eschatology influences your Middle East policy, say that could have consequences, like life and death consequences, right? And so, my my thought here is to just say, think carefully about it. it's it's worth our investigation just for that alone. the The last thing I would say is, you know, I think, as I said, I'm a confessional scholar, and I believe um, I believe the stuff that I write about, and I have a high view of scripture, um, meaning I think it it's authoritative, right? And so I want to handle it well, right? I think that's an important piece. I want to handle scripture well. Um, and I think I have a lot to learn and we all have a lot to learn on how to interpret things, but, but that'll, that I, I want to honor God with how I handle Holy scripture. And, and because there are so many consequences to eschatology, and because I've just seen so many examples through the decades of bad uses of es- eschatological texts, I just want to—I just want to be a voice to say, you know, let's hold up, let's come back to the text, let's make sure we're reading it properly, um, because we want to honor God Oof. with how we use Scripture, right? And yeah. um, and we want to honor God with our theology. We want to make sure that we're doing that and. And so anyway, I, yeah, I, maybe that helps answer the question a little bit. Um, that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I've really enjoyed this uh, discussion and I think it's been a really helpful way to show that it's not simply a, it's not just like a theoretical uh, topic. It's not um, just a, a pet topic that some of us can think about and others don't need to, but actually, like you said, has pastoral implications, has um, 
social implications for the way we live our lives as followers of Jesus. And, you know, like a, like a lot of authors talk about when you're writing a, a book, like a narrative or a novel, you begin with the end in mind that you're thinking about how does the story end? And that changes the way that they write the story, the things that they highlight, the, the things that the characters do in the story. And I think the same for us that if we have a certain view of how the story ends, it's going to influence the way we live our lives here in, you know, chapter three, four, five, whatever, on the way to that end, it, it really influences a lot. So I appreciate all your hard work in, in writing this book. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a gift, I think, to the church. It's a gift to pastors, to missionaries, to all kinds of different people that are, um, that are shepherding people's souls and walking through this topic with people uh, like Taylor and myself. So yeah, thanks for all the time you've put into it. Thank you very much for the kind words. That's very encouraging to me. It's like when you write a book, like you're not, you're not offering people pay, paper with ink on it. Like you're offering them your soul. <laughs> That's yeah. how I see writing. And yeah. it's like, uh, so to hear that it's helpful to people, to hear that it's encouraged people. And you know, that, that means more than I can ever convey. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've also been just really impressed with your charity throughout. You're very kind to readers that maybe will have a different perspective even through the book. Yeah. And so I think even as listeners are maybe, you know, tuning in and they're like, well, I don't know if I agree with all this. I think your book is very kind. (laughs) You're not going to, you know, um, I don't know what's the opposite of kindness, but you're not very mean, I guess, (laughs) throughout the book. You're very kind and gracious and charitable. Um, but also very helpful. So uh, to close out, you reference a lot of great scholarship on the topics throughout your book. Um, And so as we seek to equip ministry laborers to kind of thoughtfully understand and teach this topic for them and and other people, what are your top three resources alongside your book uh, that you would recommend? You can take some time, but just top three resources. Man, I don't think I can keep it to three. (laughs) You know, like... um... Yeah, in no particular order, I would highly recommend people check out Craig Keener's work. He's a fantastic New Testament scholar, trained in the classics. Like, he's he knows the Greco-Roman world. He's got a commentary on Revelation. It's very accessible. It's in the NIV application commentary series. Every pastor should own that commentary, that Revelation commentary. It's so fantastic. Good. So Craig Keener, David De Silva... He's got a number of books. He's a scholar on Revelation in that era. Um, he uh, has a book called Unholy Allegiances. He has reading, uh, he's got a book called Discovering Revelation. I think that's his newest book. Highly recommend David's stuff, David Da Silva. Um, let's see, Michael Gorman, I mentioned him a moment ago, Reading Revelation Responsibly. Definitely a good book. Nelson Craybill's book, Apocalypse and Allegiance. Really, really good. Okay. Um, and, uh, oh, Ian Paul has written a commentary on Revelation. I love Ian. Ian's a friend. Uh, he's a British scholar and, uh, he has a, it's a, the Tyndale commentary series, um, on Revelation. So I trust Ian. Ian's such a, a neat, neat guy. Um, so yeah, I'm leaving people out. I know I am, but those are just really good books I would, I would recommend. Awesome. And again, to reiterate to our listeners, we also are highly encouraged you to pick up, um, Matthew's book. And uh, I'm sure you can find it at, you know, your online retailers or your bookstores, wherever fine books are sold. Yes. Yeah, th- thanks for that. I, <laughs> again, my hope is that it it helps folks and it, it, it raises questions. That's the goal and gets us back into scripture, reading the scripture intently. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Um, 
you know, maybe one day we can have you back on. I saw you did a, a podcast with Preston Sprinkle about aliens. And I know <laughs> we did yeah, a, yeah, right. a two-part uh, series on aliens. Denver gives me some, you know, he mocks me about it, but. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I enjoyed it. Uh, maybe, maybe one day we'll have you back. It was on. really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, thank you yeah. for your time, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed it very much. Well, that concludes our episode for this week. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we hope you glean some some good insight for your ministry or your scholarship or hopefully both because it's really our goal here at The Learning Labors to create a space uh, where ministry experience and scholarship can overlap uh, in the lives of individual people like you. Uh, so we want to thank you for listening. We want to thank everyone who supports us and helps make the podcast possible. If you're interested in supporting our efforts, check out our Patreon link in the show notes where you can sign up to join us for as little as $3 per month. It's our prayer that through this content, more laborers in the fields of ministry can feel resourced to point their people to Jesus through their study of scripture. So continue to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts.